Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm glad that you have joined us for worship. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Luke 17. We're going to look at verses 11 and following. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how great you are. How worthy of praise and thanks and worship you are. Thank you for your inspired and errant word. And Father, as we look at a familiar text, a historical event in the life of Jesus, allow us to evaluate our lives, whether we are filled with worship and praise and thanksgiving, for you are worthy. Father, for many who are great worshipers, even allow them to take the next step in their worship of you. Father, we all want to be great worshipers. Allow us to move in that direction. You are so worthy. It's in the name of your matchless son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. I have a quick cartoon for you. One turkey saying to the other, what are you thankful for? Vegetarians. Well, that doesn't really work in my house. One particular day, Betsy's cell phone rang. She picked it up and it was her husband, Roy. Roy said, honey, are you about to go to the grocery store? Betsy said, yeah, how did you know? He said, well, I didn't, I was just wondering. Betsy, knowing her husband, she said, why do you ask? He said, well, I just met a family. They have six kids, there's eight in the family and, and well, they have nothing. They have nothing to eat for Thanksgiving, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I wondered if when you went to the grocery store, if you could buy some groceries for them and for us. Betsy bit her lip. She loved her husband's heart. He had such a giving heart. But the truth is, she had less than $50. They had eight adults coming to their house for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for Thanksgiving. And now this was another two adults and six kids. Ten adults, six kids for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And she had less than $50. But she loved her husband's heart. And so she said, sure, God's going to have to show up, but we'll do it. Roy said thanks to his wife, and he hung up. Betsy then said a prayer to the Lord, ask him to do the miracle of five loaves and two fish. Then she got on the internet. She found a nearby grocery store that was advertising 29 cents a pound for turkey. I think this is the place, Lord, she said. She cut as many coupons out as she could. She gathered them together and off to the store she went. She got two carts. One for this family she had never met and one for her own family. And she pushed them. She went first to the aisle where they had the turkey. She got there and, and her heart sank. There was a sign that said limit one. She found the manager. She explained the situation and he was so gracious. He said, we'll make an exception for you. You can have two turkeys at 29 cents a pound. God was moving. She went through the aisles. She got potatoes and stuffing and cranberry and pies and green beans and corn and, and all the makings, all the fixings for feasts. What they needed for breakfast, what they needed for after dinner, 
all of it. She had two carts and, and it was like almost everything was buy one, get one free. God was moving. Almost everything that she bought, she also had a coupon for God was moving. She got in the checkout counter and she said a prayer. It looked like a lot of groceries for $45. She got up, she put everything through the line and, and amazingly it came back where she could buy a little candy bar because this family she had met, ever met, they had a, a little five-year-old and their heart went out to him. God had done the miraculous. Later that day, Roy and Betsy went to this house met these people that Betsy had never met before and Roy had just met, gave them the food and they praised and glorified God and thanked them for their generosity. God had moved. I love that particular account, not only because it's true, the names have changed, but it's a true account. But I also love it because it illustrates a principle that is also in today's text. While it isn't always true that God moves and acts when we move and demonstrate faith, that's exactly what happened. It wasn't until they said yes, they went shopping, that God moved on their behalf. And we're going to see the same thing on behalf of 10 lepers. It's when they have faith, they take steps validating their faith, that God shows up in a miraculous way and does what only God can do. Let's pick up in our text, a very familiar one. I want to read from Luke 17. Let's look at verses 11 to 19. Listen to what God says. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he, Jesus, was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know the context of Luke 17 and the overall context of the book of Luke. Jesus has been doing miracles for three, almost three and a half years. His teaching has penetrated hearts. Most of it has been up in the north, in the Galilee. Every so often for holidays, he goes down to Jerusalem and then goes back up north. But this is the last time he'll go from the Galilee down to Jerusalem. Jesus knows that his earthly time is near, it's ending. Jesus knows that he will go to the cross that he will suffer a terrible death, a painful death. He will be nailed to the cross. He will die as a penalty, a payment of sin, not his, but yours. And he who knew no sin will become sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. 40,000 Jews 
will be crucified over a 40-year period. At least that. But what separates Jesus from all the Jews crucified is not the agony of the cross, it's the agony of sin. The sinless one, the one who has never sinned, will never sin, is covered with my filth, my sin, your filth, your sin, the filth and sin of humanity for all time. So much so that the Father, with the perfect union of the Son, is broken. And the Father turns from the Son so that the Son says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is on the way down to Jerusalem to suffer. And he's between the Galilee up north and Samaria. And Jews don't go through Samaria, though Jesus did several times. And he's kind of at the DMZ. And there's a, an area that is a little bit quarantined, a little bit separated from others. And there are 10 men, nine Jews, one Samaritan. They're touched with leprosy. And they're crying out, Lord, Master, have mercy on me. Now we know something about leprosy. It's been largely, not fully, but largely eradicated in the Western world. Back in the late 1800s, a doctor named Hansen, a Norwegian, discovered the bacteria that causes leprosy, and he found a way around it, a way to cure, a way to prevent, really. But we aren't in those days. And frankly, what today we call Hansen's disease is only one of many diseases that is meant by the Greek word lepra. It's actually not a disease. It's a wide variety of both infectious and non-infectious skin diseases, some of which would cause an individual to lose the sensation, the nerve endings in extremities, so that one could cut oneself deeply and not feel it. Or one can put one hand on a hot stove and not feel the flesh searing and burning. There were a number of these diseases, some of which were infectious, all under the rubric of lepra. And because some were infectious, it became necessary to separate those who were so infected from the rest of society so that the rest of society is not infected. A word that we now know well, they were quarantined. I would say prior to 2020, the average American knew about quarantine, but knew nothing personally of quarantine. But some have had CV or family members or friends with CV, and, and you've seen quarantine for 10 days or 24 days or even longer. The necessary separation of an infected individual with a virus from others in the population so that Others don't get it. Now, according to verse 12, there are 10 infected people, and they cry from afar, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. To be treated as a leper, it kind of breaks one's heart, doesn't it? Especially somebody who, through no fault of their own, has an infectious disease, and there needs to be a separation. I remember it was back in 1991, I believe. 
I was pastoring in Houston. We were foster parents. And in the church that I pastored, this couple that I'm going to talk about, they didn't attend. They were fellow foster parents, but they lived an hour away, the other side of Houston. And yet we were in the same foster parenting group. And they had taken a child, a child that was then in medical books. She was born with full HIV positive, later to become AIDS. This is back in 1991. And they went to a good church, but the church didn't allow the child onto the campus. And and no pastor would go visit this child, this infant. We didn't know enough about HIV. and, And frankly, they were more concerned about their own health than about this infant. And so I became her pastor. I remember the first time I held her and rocked her and prayed for her and prayed over her. And I gave the child back to the foster parents and and they looked at me and they said, you know, outside of medical personnel, you are the first person that's ever been in a room with her, much less been willing to touch her. Nobody will go near her because they're afraid for themselves. And my heart sank. I became this little infant's pastor. A few months later, God took her home. I did the worship service, the funeral, in the Baptist church where her family attended a good church. It was a very large sanctuary. No church attenders came. It was filled with several hundred doctors and nurses from the medical community of Houston, but not church attenders. They were still afraid. She was a leper through no fault of her own. Because she was born into a sin-tainted world that has diseases, she was a leper. Jesus comes across ten lepers Nine that are Jews, one that is a Samaritan, one that is a foreigner. And they cry out, have mercy on me. They know something about Jesus. They've heard about the miracles in the Galilee. They've heard about the teachings. They know that Jesus can bring healing. And so they cry out, have mercy on me. It's interesting that Jesus is on the Samaritan line, the DMZ, most Jews would stay far away. Most Jews would stay far away from lepers, but Jesus is there. Understand that that not only do Jews and lepers not mix, but Jews and Samaritans, they haven't mixed for 2,700 years. When I lead tours in Israel, I have a, a guy, a tour guide in Israel. He's excellent. He's a really good tour guide. He and I tag team. He'll start talking and I'll finish, or I'll start talking and he'll finish. And we co-teach at most places, but there's one spot we can't co-teach because, well, I'll be honest, I follow history and he ignores history. He does. He's a brilliant man, but he ignores history. Who are the Samaritans? Well, actually, they're half Jews. That's the part he ignores For the last 2,700 years, no Jew wants to admit a Samaritan has Jewish blood cursing through their veins. The year was 722 B.C. 
The king is Shalmaneser V of Assyria. He invades the 10 northern tribes. The 10 northern tribes fall and, and many Assyrians, they then settle down among the 10 northern tribes. They begin to intermarry. And so we have a new race that is half Jewish, half Assyrian. They're Samaritan. And Jews from the beginning reject Samaritans and Samaritans return the favor. When Jews want to rebuild the temple, Samaritans volunteer and the Jews say no. Samaritans then build their own temple in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans reject most of the Bible, only accepting the first five books because the rest is too Jewish and they want nothing to do with Jews. The Samaritans desecrate the temple of God by throwing pig bones in it. The Jews return the favor by desecrating the temple in Gerizim. Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. It's been that way. It still is that way. They don't like one another. And so here we have nine Jews. Nine Jews and one Samaritan. And they're together. They're together because they're kind of outsiders to everyone. They're crying out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus sees the 10. He doesn't see them based on their nationality or their skin color or the fact that they are not accepted by society. He sees them made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. He sees them as people. As I know many of you see people, you don't see skin color. You don't see nationality. You see people made in the Imago Dei, and you treat people as people made in the image of God, just as you should. So does Jesus. And Jesus says to them, go. He's basically citing the Old Testament, Leviticus 13 and 14. He says, go and present yourself to a local priest. Now understand that a local priest cannot heal any of the lepra diseases. But part of their training was to notice if a disease ever becomes dormant. Now they're going to have a disease in which they'll lose their eyebrows and there'll be tumors and ulcers on their skin and their face and and they, the priests, have become experts on seeing if a disease has become dormant. They almost never do. But in the rare case where one would become dormant with the disease, they might be allowed, if a priest approves, to come back into society. Frankly, it's a fool's task. Go and present yourself to the priests. The tens' hearts must have sunk. They've, they've done this before. They've tried this before. They've probably been humiliated. They've been mocked. They've been pushed away. They've been told to get back where they belong because you're those kind of people. You're not our kind of people. But Jesus is the one commanding it. And they know Jesus to be the miracle worker based on the fact that one will fall on his knees. They probably know Jesus to be the Messiah, the giver of eternal life. And so because Jesus said it, they did it. That should be me. That should be you. Because Jesus said it, we do it. We believe it. And as they begin to go, notice, as their faith is concomitant with action, then God begins to heal. 
God didn't heal them. Jesus didn't say you're healed. And all of a sudden their skin is like a baby skin. And then they go. That's not how the text reads. They have to step out in faith. They have to believe God for the miracle. They have to take action. And as they take action, concomitant with their faith, then God shows up and he does the miraculous. That's a pattern that we often see in Scripture. Is it in every miracle story? No, but in many of them. I think of Noah in Genesis 6 to 8. God says to Noah, build an ark, build a boat. He works on it and works on it. Year after year passes. We have absolutely no evidence that at this point there are large bodies of water nearby or that there's rain. We don't have evidence of that but he's building a boat, an ark, because God said it. His faith has action. And then when God opens the floodgates from above and below, because they've demonstrated faith, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, God shows up and does a miracle, and they're spared. I think of David just as a boy. He goes to to bring some food to his brothers who are at the front. And he hears this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, a giant of a man. His name is Goliath, and he's mocking the one true God. And none of the Jewish soldiers will come out to meet him in battle. It's a winner-take-all. Nobody wants any part in it. And I suppose David could have sat back at the very back of the army and said, Lord, I'm going to add my prayers to their prayers. Do something, please. But as David's saying, do something, please, he's going down by the brook. He's getting five smooth stones. He walks up to the giant. He puts one in his sling. And round and round and round and round, you know the song. But it's biblical truth. And he lets the stone go, hits him between the headlights, and, and Goliath goes down. David hadn't stepped out in faith. Might there be a different ending? Probably. I don't know what the ending would have been, but God often shows up in the miraculous as you and I, with faith, concomitant with action, demonstrate our faith and step out. I think of Joshua 3 and 4. You remember the Israelites, right? They get to Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. God separates it. They go through. Then they wander for a while. Now they're going to enter into the promised land. They've got the Jordan River in front of them. And God says to the priest, step into the river. Now he doesn't do what he did with the Red Sea. He doesn't separate it. They got to step into the river first. And then God separates the water and they walk on dry land. That's what happens. Now I've been to the Jordan. I haven't been to every spot in the Jordan, but I've been to a number of spots. and, And I can tell you the Jordan isn't this slow meandering. It is a drop off. That's what the Jordan is like. It's like cut like a canal. It's one step into the deep and they have to step into the water before God separates the water. Their action is concomitant with their faith, which is concomitant side by side with God moving and God delivering. Unfortunately, after that incredible miracle of healing 10, what does the text say? Only one 
only a foreigner, only a Samaritan, verse 17, verse 19, only one comes back, gets down on his knees with a loud voice and prays and worships and thanks Jesus. So what are we to say about all of this? I have three thoughts. The first I've already mentioned, but let me mention it again. I love the fact that Jesus is not seeing nationality. He's not seeing race. He's not seeing disease. He's seeing someone made in the Imago Dei. Oh, the world needs this. I think many in the church exhibit this so well. Rather than seeing a color or a kind, we see a person made in the image of God. And so... Nine are Jews, one's a Samaritan. Jesus will go into Samaria several times. Most Jews will go around. He'll heal a Samaritan. He'll make a Samaritan the hero of one of his parables. We call it the parable of the good Samaritan, right? Because Jesus isn't seeing nationality. He's not seeing color. He's seeing a person made in the image of God. And all people, Revelation 4 and 5 matter. And all people types will be in heaven from every tribe and tongue and people and nation because Jesus came to redeem all who will receive him as Savior. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of so many of you. Thank you for that kind of heart. Second, I think the text invites us to ask the questions that Jesus asks. Where are the other nine? We're not 10 healed. Why have the other nine not come back? I think the text invites us to ask those questions. Can I say the obvious? Jesus isn't asking the questions because he's stumped. We don't need any Jeopardy music while Jesus tries to figure out what the answer is to the questions. He's not asking the questions because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking the questions because he wants you and me to discover the answer. Why have nine not returned? Where are the other nine? We're not ten healed. Well, we can only speculate and I'll do that. I suppose that They've been away from their family for a long time. Some it's been months, some years, maybe a few decades for others. All of us who have family, we love to be around family, right? I just texted uh, our youngest, Hannah, and I just said to her, this is probably going to be three or four days ago, I said, I'm in Hannah withdrawal. I haven't seen you for a while. I love you. I'm in Hannah withdrawal. I need to see you. And I do. And we know this about our loved ones. My dear wife and my kids, and my son-in-law, and my grandbaby, and my sisters and my parents and my in-law. We, we want to be around family and they've been separated. And so now they're finally healed and, and I think they're making a beeline to their spouses, their children, their grandchildren, their parents, their loved ones, their siblings. And there's a lot of hugs all around. We understand that but they've got the cart before the horse. They need to go back to Jesus first. Jesus gets the priority first. Well, that's them. What about us? Oh, not you. But maybe some Christ followers 
aren't really good at making Jesus first. And so I want to ask a few questions. What's more important, family time or father time? Company work or corporate worship? Time playing athletics or time in adoration? Personal pursuits or private prayer? Now, let me be honest. I just ask an either or, and it's really a both and, isn't it? It's not that one side is good and one side is bad. That's really not true. It was a false dichotomy I set up. However, while being a false dichotomy, there is a priority. God first in all four. Family, job, others, second. You remember Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Some of you are athletes. You know what the phrase garbage time means? It's a, it's a derisive term. I don't appreciate it. Oh, you were a starter in sports, so you don't care, but but if you were ever on the bench, garbage time is a bit insulting. You know what garbage time is, don't you? Garbage time is when the outcome has already been achieved. One team is way ahead. The score is lopsided. The last couple of minutes doesn't matter. And so the coach has the starters come back in. They sit together and they kind of laugh at what's going on. And they send out the subs. And the other team has subs and for the last couple of minutes, it doesn't really matter who scores and who doesn't because it's garbage time. The outcome has already been determined. God doesn't want my garbage time. He doesn't want your garbage time. He doesn't want devotions in the morning if I can just cram the 10 minutes and it fits and, and I get up early enough. He doesn't want my garbage time. He doesn't want my garbage time that I'll go to church on those Sundays where maybe it's raining outside or my recreation doesn't start right away and so I can kind of squeeze in a little church first. He doesn't want my garbage time. He doesn't want to be the back burner. He is priority. That's where the nine got it wrong. Yes, they needed to get to their family. Yes, hugs needed to happen. Yes, there needed to be family restoration. But there was a priority. They needed to go back to Jesus. They needed to be with Jesus first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Finally, I kind of wonder if maybe some of them didn't return because they felt like God owed them. I mean, let's be honest, man. They've been sick for months, years, decades. What kind of fairness is that, God? And some have this sense that God owes us 
That God owes us a job or a better job, a spouse or a stronger family. God owes us the life of a loved one who has passed. God owes us health. God owes us the end of CV. God owes us, and we fill in the blank. And we have this sense of entitlement, which has become a very dangerous thing in America. We think that we are owed things, and it even spills into our Christian walk. God owes us. And I suppose if I were to say that to you, most of you would say, come on, Jeff, no way. And you might cite a passage like Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in it. God doesn't owe me. He doesn't owe you. Every breath we take is a good gift by the creator and sustainer and lover of our soul. The one who redeems us through the shed blood of Christ and offers us a future, a hope, an eternity with God in heaven. God owe us. No, we owe him everything. Everything. I think of Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. I'm thankful that that's not true for so many of you. You rightly honor him as God. You praise him. You worship him. You glorify him as God. And you're like the one. You go back. You're daily thanking God. You're finding reasons to praise God. Awesome. Thank you for your model. Thanksgiving is a wonderful day, but it's only one of 365. There's so many reasons to thank God, to praise God, to glorify God. I don't want to have an attitude of entitlement. I'm entitled to nothing. I don't want to have an attitude of garbage time. That's all Jesus gets. No, he gets the first fruit. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Thanks to so many of you who well model Thanksgiving. May you have a great Thanksgiving holiday, and may you, I, we, have hearts dripping with Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father God, we have so much to be thankful for. You are worthy of our thanks, our praise, our worship. May we never settle for garbage time for you. May you be the priority. All of our days. It's in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.